Arkle has taken the lead off Milhouse, and Milhouse has no answer to Arkle's speed as they come towards the last fence. It's Arkle for Ireland, and both riders are hard at it. Here they come into the last. Arkle over first, Milhouse over second. On the run in with 150 yards to go. It's Arkle for Ireland. The great start goes up to the stand as Pat Tapp has Milhouse in measure. The Gold Cup straight to Ireland with 100 yards to run. It's Ireland's Gold Cup to Arkle. Arkle is the winner. Milhouse is beaten. The champion is in 1964, a young man inspired by Arkell, the most famous horse of all time, fell in love with horse racing. A love affair that changed his life. Today, Oliver Brady, aged 70, is the only horse trainer in his native county, Monaghan. A small man competing in the sport of kings. Yeah, well, you know, to me, Arkell uh, was the best steeplechaser uh, there ever was. People will say there were other good ones, but there was no, nothing, and I don't think we'll ever see another horse as good as Arkell ever in our lifetime again. He was special. He was such a good jumper uh, of the steeplechases that Arkell made horses fall. He, he was able to take off to two strides back from where he should do and land on the other side and he left horses fall and he left them sitting on top of fences he was a, just a, a special horse in my view and you know knowing that there was horses like uh, Arkle around people dreams of maybe getting an Arkle and everybody would be loving to have it and it would make you stay in racing to see horses like that and make you want to train horses to see if you could ever uh, find an Arkle or get something like Arkle again. You know, uh, I mean, he was special, special, special. This is a very special part of the country that you're in here. Um, this farm that you're on belonged to the late Senator Billy Fox. He, Billy Fox was a TD in Ireland and uh, then later went into the Senate and became a senator. And uh, he, he suffered an unfortunate death. But this was his home here and the, the local farmer uh, and myself were very friendly and we always kept friendly. He was known as Johnny Clark and he's now passed on and um, Johnny was kind of a godfather here and so was Fox and between the two of them, Johnny Clerken and Billy Fox, they looked after all the needy and uh, helped all the needy in, in, in around this area and Fox uh, wrote to me and said that this land was coming up for sale and I should come and buy it because it would be a great wee bit of land and he knew I was looking for to come back home so I came over and bought the land and looked at it and thought well one day I'll be fit to set up a training establishment and I've done that but I kept the old house, the old house is here and as I say, quite a lot of history to it In 1981 the gamble of a lifetime allowed Oliver to return home after almost 20 years of working abroad The, lo the love I have for racing came from when I was a, a young boy. I, um, Bally Bay had a very famous fair uh, for selling horses. It w every month it was a, there was a horse fair in Bally Bay, and um, I would go to the fair to try and make a few bob for my mother. You know, we were a very poor family, and uh, we were brought up. Um, 
my mother brought us up very, very well, but she had to work herself. And on the fair days, I would I would go down to I would go down to the fair, and uh, farmers would be selling their horses and ponies. And the guy that wanted to buy them, he'd want to see them ridden to see that they were broken and they were able to be ridden. So you'd be always standing around and. The farmer call you over and ask you to ride the horse and you'd trot him up the street and if there was a wee bit of grass you'd gallop him round the grass to let them see, let the, the buyer see that uh, he was easy to ride and he was um, he, 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 he was worth buying and if you were lucky enough that maybe the farmer sold it you might get uh, half a crown but on a normal good uh, fair day you could probably end up making about um, 10 or 12 shillings and that was a real lot of money. My mother used to work for a full day for about uh, 5 bob or 7 and 6 pence at at that stage and maybe some of the fair days I could come home with more money than my mother would by riding the horses out round. My elder brother taught me how to um, how to catch rabbits and I used to go out and catch rabbits and the rabbits would be sold in the local town and then shipped over to England in those days because the clothes that I would have worn would have been left off from the richer people in the town and then when I got older I moved away for the want because there was no work in Ireland. Horse trainers live for race day and today the 2.15 at Navan is Oliver's Theatre of Dreams. Yeah, the, the box is getting ready now and we're getting ready because we're in the first race at a quarter past two and it's very important to load up early, get down, give the horses a rest. I always like to be there at least an hour and a half before the the horse races to stretch his legs and get him walking around the stable yard and just used to what's going to happen. Uh, that Just the build-up is a very important part of the whole thing as well, so... He's taken the box now to load the horses on and they'll be gone within 15, 20 minutes now. years ago. Right. I, I came back in 1981 to, to Ireland and uh, uh, one, of the, one of the greatest bets I ever had was I had um, doubles and trebles um, some years ago. It wasn't a big stake to get it. I, I earned uh, I got myself 108,000 it was 216,000 I collected and uh, myself and another fellow were in partners in the bet. We had Willie Wumpkins, Little Owl, and Sea Pigeon. 
in doubles and trebles, and we, we collected 216,000. I got 108, and he got 108, and that's what I bought this farm with. Um, I put on three 250 each way doubles and a 250 each way treble. Uh, the horses uh, at that stage, Little Owl was 33 to 1, Sea Pigeon off memory was 8 to 1, and Willie Wompkins was 16 to 1. And then I had a few single bets as well. I suppose, really and truly, in the racing world, I've become very famous for my celebrations. And I think my celebrations have been always very, very special to me in as much as um, that I never believed that I was going to be that type of person. I was in my younger days, I remember my mother thinking that I was very quiet and and uh, and so on. Um, but I came out, soon came out of my shell. I think one of the things that brought me out of my shell mostly, and I don't talk about it much, but it was a big, big help in my career to become the fellow that I am was that uh, in years gone by, I went up to Northern Ireland to work in Northern Ireland in my early days. And uh, I um, had a run-in with my local parish priest and I left the church and went over and I it's on record that I preached alongside the Reverend Ian Paisley for one I did a lot of work in the Presbyterian churches and the Methodist churches, the Baptist churches Neil and Pentecostal churches uh, as a lay preacher in those days and they brought me on a good bit and then um, when the trouble started up in Northern Ireland I got away from all that because uh, you know uh, the amount of people that uh, got shot or killed or got involved in in politics and I never wanted to get involved in politics or anything like that so I made my way out uh, to and changed my whole lifestyle and then came back to the racing but that's how probably I'm fit to talk and so on because I did a lot of correspondence courses and I studied a lot of the Bible and I'm not saying that I'm the most religious man in the world but there's one thing I can say is this, that I believe in God and I put my trust in God and uh, my religion and God is very important to my whole career. So... Um, the celebrations all started and the public loved it and sure, what can you do uh, it's great to give the public what they want they go race and they pay their money in some of them come home losing all their money, some of them come home happy uh, if one of them asks me if my horse has a chance, there's one thing I can tell you I always make sure that the punter is told the truth I tell him the truth and uh, if uh, my horses I think has a chance I'm, I tell them they have a chance sometimes they don't live up to what I tell them, but not all that often. Mostly I'm pretty on the ball. When I tell you to have a few bob each way on one that I have, you can be guaranteed that uh, you'll not come home without collecting a few bob. Uh, if I tell you that, I don't think of any chance. No, if that's one of the other things I do. When I enter a horse into a race when I'm running it, I spend a lot of time in the form book studying the forms of my opponents and everybody else, and then I know whether I have half a chance or not. The Such have been Oliver's unique dramatics in the winner's enclosure that his frolics have been immortalised in song. The little hills of Monaghan, Brady put them on the 
I was at Nias one day and I had a good few quid on a horse called Baron de Fapo and um, John Cullen was riding him for me and uh, I, I thought that day going to Nias that I couldn't be beat with him and um, hence to say I, I had, a, had a good few quid but I was coming down from the stands to do the celebrations and got excited about that I was looking for to buy a new horse box and I knew I had the money in the kit he got to buy the horse box and just as I was coming down to the bottom of the stands the next thing was this fellow runs straight into me and I sure I clattered over and the next thing I found him lifting me up and all he was doing was apologising he said I'm awful sorry I'm awful sorry I I run into the parade ring there's a madman about to appear in the parade ring and I I couldn't miss him and uh, I never said to him I said to myself he'll know all about the madman in a minute or two when he gets there he's going to find that it was the valley he pushed over so you know it was kind of that was another one that stood out in my mind that uh, people thought that I was stone mad and mad in the head and, and so on self-sufficient. I have my own diesel tank and the lorry pulls in and we fill up before the go so there's no, we don't have to stop uh, along the roads if possible uh, looking for diesel. That's only new, John. How do, how do you feel the new bit? I just great, it's a great, huh? job. It's a great job now, yeah. 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 Nice gallop. John, yeah. this is John Cullen. Hey, John. How are you going? How are you? Yeah. So, can you just tell us what you've been doing all morning, John? I'm just basically riding, riding out a couple of lots, just doing what Oliver tells us to do. <laughs> and who's this here? Uh, seaability. Well, what's what's he like? This is grand. He's a young horse. He hasn't really he hasn't raced, has he? No. No, he hasn't raced. He's a young horse and. He's in, you know, he's he's grand. He's he's a lot to go. You know, he's he's improved. You know, he's, he's grand, but he's you know he's doing what what he's doing now is doing. He's doing it well, like you know. And uh, how long will it take before he's before he's running races? You reckon? Oh, sure, you better talk to the trainer about that. Yeah. I would be thinking this fellow be ready to go in about five weeks' time. We're hoping that this fellow might make uh, Cheltenham as well. This is one of the string. Uh, whether he's good enough, he, he has to prove that he's good enough, of course, but we'd be thinking that he's on the list. I have a half a dozen mapped out for Cheltenham because you never can be sure. How long has he been out? I suppose uh, love a half an hour um, in all, like, you know, um, you know, we've done a bit of a trot and a bit of a canter, you know, they worked yesterday, so we're just giving them light exercise today, so, but, you know, that's it, basically, you know.
One of the horses I had in one of the highlights of my career was a horse I bought from John Ox called Gazzalani. And I remember I used to run him against the mighty Isterbrack. And people used to be laughing at me. They were ju- they'd be thinking, that fella Brady, he's stone mad. He doesn't know what he's doing taking on Isterbrack with a horse called Gazzalani. I knew every day that I put Gazzalani in the box and every day I had it for the race course. The only thing that I was going to, if I had any chance of beating Isterbrack, it was a foul. Nothing more than a fall. But there was big bucks in those days for finishing second and third. And if you look up Gazzalani and anybody wants to look it up and see, everywhere Isterbrack went, I went too. And I run against Isterbrack with, with that horse and I won over 100,000 in, in prize money in finishing second and third indeed. Uh, I never beat him. Uh, I never thought I would and never in me wildest dreams but I went there for the prize money and now I see a lot of the big trainers copying me now they all say to themselves hey that Brady fella he wasn't as stupid as we all thought he was or he wasn't as mad there's good bucks in in going to these five runner races Uh, one of the great stories I think I tell is the Ardley Star one he Ardley Star was a mare that a fella brought to me from Port Rush and she was absolutely useless she was a no use for racing. She was no good for anything, and she was as slow as a boat. And I remember saying to the owner, "Look at, there's one good thing about your mare. She loves soft ground, and the heavier you can get it, the better she'd be because she's slow and she'd stay all day. But there's one thing she can do, and that is jump. And I remember going to Navan one day with her uh, five runner race." And I had a young jockey from Kerry called Nicky O'Shea. And I remember O'Shea coming out into the parade ring and looking at me. And I said, now, just before we start or I give you any instructions, the first thing I want to say to you is that in the way room, the paper, the media, everybody thinks we're stone mad. So the instructions you're getting today, I doubt if you'll ever get them again. But uh, this is what you're going to do while the boys are sitting at the start with the other four horses, go up to them and tell them you're going to make it. And they'll burst out laughing because there were some horses in the race. Indeed, I think of one of the horses, was a horse called Matter Granger, uh, trained by Noel Mead. And uh, Noel, uh, uh, in my books, is another top trainer and uh, one that any time you'd go into a race and Noel Mead had won, that's the first horse you'd look at to see had he any chance because you'd know that he was uh, would always have a danger horse in the race. And I remember looking at it, and Mattock Ranger would have, on the books in a handicap, would have had to give us four stone. And I can say to you now that I looked at it and I said to young O'Shea now, you know, they'd be all laughing, how could Ardley Star give... Four stone to Matter Granger. When you go up there, what this is the instructions you're getting. Go up to the boys, tell them you're going to make it. They'll burst out laughing and then move down onto the tape while the boys are walking around. They'll be 20 to 30 uh, lengths behind you walking around. And when the starter gets up on his rostrum and says, Right, lads, you shout up, I'm ready, sir. And because there's only five runners, he'll drop the tape and let you go on. I said, now try and get another 20 up if you can. And I can tell you one thing, whatever speed you start at, that's the speed you'll be finishing at. She won't, she'll, she'll not die on you anyway, she'll stay on and stay on. And in the heavy ground, uh, she might have an advantage over the four stone boys if they have to race to get you. If they sit and sit and sit and sit and think that they're going to eat you up over the, 
the last two, they never get to you. And it worked out that way. I remember coming home and saying, what a great bit of um, advice I give the jockey. What a great coup it was to go with that mare. Now, that mare was worth 500 euros. That's what her value was. And she jumped in value that day from 500 euros to 60,000 sterling. And that's what the owner got for her. And I told him never to race her again, sell her off to stud, because it was a very high-class race and the mare was worth a lot of money. And that's what he did. Here, five to four, the fail on the next event. Five to four. Yeah, yeah we're here in Avon Racecourse. Uh, this is a very big race. It's a grade three race. The horse ran yesterday, but he eat up and seems well. So I'm having a hopeful that we'll get into some prize money. I'm not saying we're going to win because there's a lot better horses in this race. But if I can get him into the prize money, I'll be more than happy. With me now is James Griffin, and we're going to have a look at the runners for the for auction, Novices Hurl, which is a great three race. Uh, we'll start with the top, James Barrendale, uh, trained by Edward Harty. He's a four to one chance at the moment. Uh, number five, Takistan, ran in Don Royal yesterday, uh, coming out again today. Yeah, Oliver Brady, you know, he likes to tilt a little bit at windmills, but Pakistan, he, he certainly warrants his place as he's won his races. It's a free run for the owner. It's great to see Oliver here today. Pakistan, it wouldn't surprise you if you see Oliver performing in the winner's enclosure. In this race, horse number 20 has been withdrawn on Bethany Price. Number 20 has been withdrawn on Bethany Price. Yeah, I'm sitting nicely there at the minute on the outside. He's getting, giving them the best to the ground. You can see him there. He's laying midfield and I, I, I'd be happy enough now with him there. This is not going to be my day today. Yeah, didn't uh, handle the ground at could, all. Could probably just do we put away now. And be, yeah, well that's what otherwise pretend this was. He's going to he's going tired after that, and he, he only got to be truthful to you. But the sun shining and the way it is, isn't it lovely to be here? Uh, you know, uh, my my bad health doesn't really bother me when I see, can get up in the morning, come racing, and take my horses racing, and get to a place like Navan and enjoy what. I've just after doing. Uh, there's no way that health would bother you when you have a kind of an attitude to life like that. Uh, we're very unfortunate that our family has a history of cancer, and right down through the years. Uh, I've had brothers die and a sister die with cancer. My mother died with cancer. Uh, my brother died with it and his daughter died with it and my sister's uh, son died with it. So we've had a lot, a lot of problems in the family with this particular disease. I, I, I suppose one of the things that uh, sticks out to my mind was the day that I was diagnosed with the cancer. I went in to see... Uh, 
my uh, surgeon up in, in the matter up in Dublin, the matter private, Professor Fitzpatrick, and he sat me down on a chair and he gave me the bad news. And uh, when he gave me the bad news, I just didn't, it didn't just hit me there and then, but I looked at him and said, but there's an alternative. He said, well, tell me what the alternative is. And I said, the alternative is to sit back and do nothing and get nothing done. But he said, I can assure you that's not an alternative. You'll not be around much longer if you take that route. So I knew then that the writing was on the wall, told me that I didn't have long to go if I didn't go down the route and go and have the operation done. I left his surgery and I went out into the car and I sat down, I was on my own and I gave it a good pause over and I had, I might as well tell you, a big man at at, uh, 60 years of age, you would hardly think I would be shedding a few tears, but I certainly did that day in the car. I shed a few tears and thought about the dilemma that I was faced with. I thought about um, my whole background, thought about my brothers and sisters and the family, and I gave everything a thought and uh, didn't know what to do. But I finally got to terms with myself and I decided to go and have the operation done. And I have to thank God that I did because I came through the operation. But when I went in for this operation, I didn't think really and truly, I have to be truthful, I didn't think I had any other illnesses at all. So when they started to do the tests in the hospital, the first thing they found out was that I was a diabetic, something that I hadn't even got the slightest uh, clue about it. Um, I remember saying to the doctor... um, you know, we talk about this diabetes. Uh, I never drank in my life. I never smoked in my life. Um, I've always trusted God. Uh, how come I got diabetes? Well, he said, basically, you have more than diabetes. You have high blood pressure. You have a heart problem as well. And something has to be done about that as well. And the whole lot stemmed from you getting the diabetes. Uh, now, he's told me there's no diabetes in our family at all I'm the only one that is a diabetic and and uh, basically I got that from drinking coca-cola and lucasade and eating sweet cakes and that was the situation which I don't do any longer I uh, now and again maybe at Christmas time I might have a wee glass of coke or something like that but uh, and sweet cakes are uh, now a nil for as far as uh, I'm concerned but I, I take the advice from the doctors and what they tell me to do, I do it. So I battled with my diabetes and then I went, with, the, with the diabetes I would, uh, was getting a shortage of breath and I thought maybe that I was going to have a stroke or heart attack and then I did have the mild heart attack. I had, I found I was a bit short of breath and that I wasn't just getting uh, as far as I used to be walking and running and I couldn't do things as good as I used to. First of all, I thought maybe it was age just creeping on, but it wasn't that. Uh, it, it simply and plainly was that my arteries were all blocked up. So uh, I went in to see the doctor about it. He took me in and uh, uh, did an angiogram and put me on tablets and the next thing was I 
kept in touch with him and then he asked me about my breath and I told him it was starting to affect me again. He took me in, done another angiogram and then he said he was going to put things called stints in. He took me into the theatre to put the stints in and I remember that one well because the wee nurse that was taking me in, I said, love, how long does this operation take? And she said, well, if you're lucky 15 minutes, you might be out in half an hour. But don't worry about it, it's, it's simple. So I went in anyway, I remember it was ten past one, I could see it on the clock when I went into the theatre, and at a quarter to three I was still there, and all I could hear the doctor saying, we'll balloon it and we'll do all sorts of things, and then uh, finally he said to me, it, couldn't, it didn't work. So they put me back up into bed and took me down a couple of days later and gave me a quadruple bypass. I do have some great stories to tell about some of the horses I've trained and uh, the way I've trained them, uh, no hopers and all that. But one of the best stories I think I can tell was the time that the hospital took me in and they put this monitor on me to monitor my heartbeats. So I had racing at Nace the following day and this heartbeat uh, machine was on for a whole weekend. But anyway, I got through the weekend and when I left the heartbeat in, they brought me in said that there was serious, serious problems with my heart and that they needed to do more tests and the tests were because there was a one a half hour that uh, they couldn't understand about the heart. The heart went absolutely crazy and they couldn't get to the bottom of it and they'd have to bring me in for tests to check what caused it and I said to them, well you needn't bother your head I can tell you what caused that. I had a winner at Nace yesterday afternoon at exactly the time that that monitor went wrong and uh, I was doing a bit of a gig for the people and uh, that's where it, uh, it all went wrong. So uh, after I calmed down, it was OK again. So they accepted that and I didn't have to win for any monitor. So I was very happy about that as well, but it was a, a queer thing for it to happen. Um, the next thing was um, I was watching television one evening and I noticed, I went to scratch one of my eyes and I noticed a, the other eye, I had only half a sight in it. So I went to the doctor again, they took me back to the matter again and found that I had what they call a ruptured retina and I had to go on the go surgery again, about three hours surgery on a Saturday morning. Yes, uh, ticket 110, 190. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks very much. 5H8. 5H8. I always think maybe God uh, works, the, uh, the Bible says that God works in mysterious ways. And I think one of the mysterious things about God was that maybe uh, some of those diseases I got maybe woke me up to the plight of other people. And I mean that sincerely, that the thoughts, what happened to me, I started to think, well, I'm near the end of my tether anyway. God is maybe talking to me in a different way and showing me uh, to help uh, the other people. uh, And that's what my life is all about now. It's helping other people and... I just want to do 
I don't want any credit for myself. I don't want to be seen as a saint or anything like that. I just want to do God's will and get on with a bit of uh, fundraising and help the, the poor unfortunate people. You know, the Kenya thing was uh, uh, one that uh, was brought home to me when I went out to Kenya on a holiday. Uh, when I went out to Kenya on a holiday and then I saw... Uh, what was going on in Kenya and then I went deeper uh, uh, into the bush in Kenya to see the children with no shoes, no clothes uh, mothers with no food, making porridge in an open fire out in the plains and and no schooling and the sc- that bit got to me the fact that I got schooling when I was a boy and these here was these kids with no schooling whatsoever how could they make a way for themselves with no education so I decided that one of the most important things in Kenya would be if I could just reach out to the people who are not being educated and try and educate the kids that they could do something for themselves a lot of charities send out food and a lot of them do different work my work is educating the children. Building a school in Nigeria, it's halfway up at this minute as we talk, and the other school is just starting in Kenya. So the, the two schools will be built, and thank God those little children will be educated and do something for themselves. This is one of the most special places in my whole life. Uh, my late brother, who um, me and myself and him, my late brother Benny and myself, who were very, very friendly, when he died, one of his requests was that his ashes would be brought home to Ireland and sprinkled on the gallops. I felt that I'd do more than sprinkle them on the gallops, so I've had a priest come and consecrate this piece of ground and uh, this is where I spread his ashes and you can see I've turned it into a little garden and memorial garden for him. I decorate it up and I have a few of the wee flowers and all growing around here and I planted all these apple trees and pear trees and everything because it's a little bit sacred to me. So when I come in the mornings I can have a little prayer in his remembrance and watch the horses coming around the gallops and I have the little... Hot there. He called that when he was alive, he called that the champagne bar. So we could have a, a glass of wine. Well, I don't drink, but he'd have his glass of wine and sit out and uh, have a look over the, the view of the lakes and the hills and the hollows and, that we have here in Monaghan. So this was very dear to me, and as it was his last wish that that's what he'd like to do. He died in England with the cancer, and uh, as I say, we brought it home, and it's very dear to me and his family can come here and uh, come up to this instead of him lying in a cold graveyard over in England he's here back in Monaghan 
with us all the time and the fond memories still live on with the two of us. The only time I thought about my own death was when I came out of the, the when I came out of the hospital and give it a long thought. I thought uh, my time's up. I was sure I was going, and uh, then when the doctors did such a marvelous job as they did, and God give me the wish to carry on, I do not think about death anymore. One thing I can tell you: I'm prepared to go. And if I did go, I'd love to go in one of the parade rings instantly, maybe take a heart attack or something like that. But I'm not going to allow, uh, I'm not going to allow any diseases to, to get me very easily. And probably uh, whilst I'm doing this good work for God, I think probably he'll allow me to stay a little while longer till I get my work done. When my work's finished, then I don't mind going. Is to count your blessings, not your regrets. With peace inside your soul, and all that heaven holds, I hope you always know I will pray for you. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.